0: here today we are moving on through Nicaea to the clause on the Holy Spirit and so we are going to do two to three episodes on the Holy Spirit and then we have a couple more episodes and then we're done with through Nicaea and so the schedule for the show is going to be a little bit different as I try to push through Nicaea to be done before the end of July Uh, and then I'm going to take a brief break to prep for Season 3, and then we'll move on uh, to Season 3. Uh, before we begin today, just a reminder that Christ is the Cure is subscriber-supported, and you can join the support team at patreon.com forward slash Christ is the Cure. We're still working towards our goal, and then my official uh, like social media campaign for Patreon will kind of end in July, and then we'll just advertise it like normal. In the past, I haven't really pushed it much, and so the fact that I'm having to push a little bit more now is just because I was lazy and awkward about it before. So anyway, let's get into we believe in the Holy Spirit. So here we reach one of the most significant expansions of the Creed of 325. Initially, the Creed of Nicaea only stated, quote, we believe in the Holy Spirit, end quote. And while this was enough for that initial creed, the council at Constantinople found a need for an expansion in the Creed of 381. This is namely because of a group of heretics that arose known as the spirit fighters. Uh, the spirit fighters opposed the deity of the spirit, but they're a little bit different than what we see nowadays. Nowadays, whenever people will imply that the Holy Spirit is a force, uh, not a person, the spirit fighters believe that the spirit was a person, um, but lesser than the Father and the Son. So the Cappadocians, remember the, the two Gregory's and Basil, would be heavily influential in articulating the Orthodox position on the Holy Spirit as a proper member of the Trinity. And then we have this expansion appearing in 381 of this whole clause. Uh, The spirit fighters taught that the spirit was a creature and less than God and inferior in every respect. The Holy Spirit for them did not share in the glory of God uh, and his power was limited to whatever was assigned to him by the Father and the Son. The Cappadocians would argue against uh, these spirit fighters' by defending the deity of the Holy Spirit in a number of ways. So Gregory Nyssa, for example, would argue that the Holy Spirit is demonstrated as God uh, from Scripture to be good, omnipotent, wise, eternal, and so forth. Uh, he would also refute the notion that the Spirit had no work with the Father and the Son in creation. Uh, that was a big point of contention, whether or not the Holy Spirit was active in creation as a creator with the Father and Son. And he would say that, uh, because of inseparable operations of the three persons, that is that the three persons work together um, because they are in one will and one mind, otherwise you would have tritheism, that the spirit obviously had a role in creation. And this is where um, the term appropriations comes in. Each person would have something appropriated to them, but they still work inseparably. So within this mind, we, we have this formula of creation being formed through the one will, impulse, and power of the triune God. And it's described by Gregory as creation, beginning from the Father, advancing through the Son, and completed in the Holy Spirit. Uh, So the three persons always act together in every divine work or operation, yet would have particular aspects of each work appropriated to them. Um, So we we see this, that uh, only the Son was incarnate out of the three persons, but all three persons had a role in the incarnation so gregory would also point out that the spirit must have glory equal to the father and son as he has the glory to give to the father and the son Uh, so because the holy spirit can give the father and son glory uh, that glory that he can give them must be equal so within the godhead the father son and holy spirit all glorify one another gregory of nazianzus uh, who also presided over the council of constantinople for a bit of time uh, would discuss the holy spirit in his fifth theological oration His arguments were a bit more complex, and so I won't highlight them all here, Uh, but he reasoned ultimately that the Holy Spirit must be divine as he himself acts rather than being a mere activity of the Father and the Son. Uh, Basil the Great would also work to defend the personhood and the deity of the Holy Spirit. He would disagree with the notion that there was degrees of deity and that the Holy Spirit was a third in dignity. Instead, that there is a uh, logical or Trinitarian order, the taxes that we've talked about before, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he disagreed that this order means that one is inferior in nature. Basil used many of the same apologetics that we find even to this day regarding the deity of the Holy Spirit, such as um, the equate of lying to God being lying to the Holy Spirit that we find in Acts, that we'll talk about here in a minute, uh, the Holy Spirit's works, uh, the incarnation, and the ministry with the Son uh, in general and in the incarnation and uh, the life of Jesus Christ. So to the Creed of Constantinople, um, both Ilowski and Lethem point out that the council was hesitant to include that the spirit was homoousius, uh, and that is uh, um, of the same nature with the father and son, but it wasn't because they denied the truth. In fact, in a letter that goes out the following year would affirm it, but it was more for political issues. Uh, if you remember, there was a great debacle after 325, uh, with the Aryans because of that term. And so they just seem to have avoided it in order to safeguard themselves from a fallout like they had after 325. So basically they were finding a way to frame it in a way that was clear and that denied the spirit fighters uh, and denied any idea of subordinationism with the Holy Spirit, and yet was easy in terms of language for everyone to accept. Uh, Basically they were being wise about it uh, learning from their mistakes. So, the creed obviously states what no spear fighter could ever affirm. The spirit was not a creature, but is instead called Lord, who is to be worshiped with the Father and the Son. Just as well, the statement that the spirit proceeds from the Father would refute the idea that the spirit was created by the Son. Um, And this procession indicated that this procession from the Father's essence is like the Son's generation from the Father's essence, meaning that. Uh, they share fully in the divine nature, and to be clear here, there is there's a big stress on the fact that generation is not procession. Uh, they they wanted those terms to be distinct because it is not the same. Begottenness is not the same as procession, and the the eternal relation of origin or personal property has to be different to distinguish the spirit from the son. I mean, we talked a little bit about that before, so uh, and we're going to discuss the procession of the spirit later on. So um additionally in noting that the spirit is the giver of life places the spirit in unity with the work of the father and son in creation and redemption so let's talk about the biblical support for this we can first talk about the personhood of the spirit uh, which is interesting to remember that the Spirit fighters did not deny that the spirit was an agent but rather they denied that he was equal to the father and son and so they affirmed that the holy spirit was a person but they uh, deemed him a creature and so that's distinctive from what we find a lot of times, where the Holy Spirit is projected as a force rather than a person. Now, in fact, we talk um, a lot of times in evangelical circles as if the Holy Spirit is in it, not in He, which is a mistake. Not even the Spirit fighters would make. Um, so, the personhood of the Holy Spirit can be recognized in that the Spirit is intelligent and knows all things. And you read this in Isaiah forty thirteen through 14, 1 Corinthians two ten through eleven. Uh, the Holy Spirit can be grieved, Isaiah 63.10, Ephesians 4.30. Uh, the Holy Spirit can be insulted, Hebrews 10.29. Has volition expressed in 1 Corinthians 12.11. He appoints in Acts 13.1-4 and 16.6-8. 6 he testifies in John 15.26 and Romans 8.16. He teaches in John 14.26. He leads in Psalm 143.10 and Romans 8.14. And he intercedes. Romans 8:26 through27. Additionally when we examine the biblical data we quickly see that the Holy Spirit's attributes are those of deity. Uh, he is everywhere present in Psalm 139 7 through 10. He knows all things like we mentioned already. Uh, he knows the mystery of the triune God 1 Corinthians 2:10 through 11. He is eternal, Hebrews 9:14. He works alongside the father and the Son. Uh, and you see this in Luke 1, 34-37, in Genesis 2, 7, Job 33, 4. He regenerates, John 3, 5-6, and Titus 3, 5. He unites to Christ in Romans 8, 9-10, and he works in justification and sanctification, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. and he can be blasphemed Blasphemed, sorry, in Matthew 12, 22-32. Um, this is all significant here because it points to personhood, and it points to that equality of divine nature. Things that are attributed to the Father and the Son are attributed to the Holy Spirit. And really in the Old Testament and Second Temple literature, we talked about how there is this idea of the two arms of the Lord that Irenaeus picks up in the early church, and one of those two arms would be considered the Holy Spirit. Uh, One being the Word of God, and one being the breath of God, so to speak. And of course, how that kind of becomes articulated is interesting because there's kind of a switch. There's an oscillation, Whenever I've read through literature, between uh, the Holy Spirit being the wisdom of God uh, in some writings, while a lot of people point out, well, obviously Christ is wisdom or the type of wisdom. So that gets kind of interesting, but it's a little bit beyond our scope here. So one of the classic indicators of the Holy Spirit's deity is actually found in Acts 5, 1 through 11. We'll just read it. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart, You have not lied to man, but to God? Uh, and so that's really, um, you can read the whole passage, but you see that Ananias is said to have lied to God by his lying to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then we find that when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Uh, so this lie to the Holy Spirit was ultimately cause for the death penalty. And then his wife follows suit, which is really a shocking uh, picture, especially in Acts when, um, you know, the Messiah just rose and everyone's preaching the gospel and things are going great. But then all of a sudden you have this testimony of, well, someone who lies and and sins against God is struck dead. Uh, And the purpose of that is noted in both of these passages. Uh, And great fear came upon all who heard it. And you see that when Ananias dies and whenever his wife dies and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard those things. So there was a lesson to be learned there and a purpose for it. But ultimately what we find for our purposes here is that whenever they lie to the Holy Spirit, it is paralleled with lying to God. And then in 5.9, Peter asks Ananias's wife, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? In the Old Testament, we find that testing the Spirit of the Lord is a common expression for sinning against Yahweh. And you can see examples of this in Exodus 17, 2, and Deuteronomy 16. Not only this, but their sin against the Holy Spirit warrants the death penalty for both parties, for, for the husband and the wife. So you have a couple of indicators here. First, you have lying to the Holy Spirit is akin to lying to God. Testing the Spirit of the Lord is an expression for sinning against Yahweh. And then they warranted the death penalty by lying to the Holy Spirit. It's a very interesting and subtle exchange, but this text has been appealed to uh, by the church for centuries. So our application for this section is very simple. Two things. One, we must remember that we have the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling us and working with us to commune with the Godhead and grow in sanctification. And two, we consciously work to refer to the Holy Spirit as a he rather than a mere it or a type of force. That subtle distinction in how we speak about the Holy Spirit makes a world of difference. And that's the only application point I really want to stress here um, because it's really easy to fall into that pit of referring to He as an it, which is very irreverent for Yahweh. So our next section is the Lord, the giver of life. So the role of the Holy Spirit in terms of his being the giver of life was a major point of emphasis in the church historically. The Holy Spirit, uh, he was considered to be the one who completed the work of the Father and the Son in creation, redemption, and the new creation and this is seen in both the early church's understanding of various biblical texts and even in our contemporary understanding of said text, uh, especially via our inheritance uh, in Christ. So because of this, we can, we can kind of blend the historical perspective with the biblical support uh, because there's a lot of overlap here. So in creation, the church has pointed to the work of the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters in Genesis 1-2. So you have the Father speaking the word being the agent of creation, and the spirit hovering and energizing or animating, uh, whatever word you want to use there. Sometimes we kind of shy away from those terms because they kind of sound New Agey or Eastern, but really that's how the church has always talked about it. Uh, So you see all three persons in Genesis working in creation. Now, the early church would look at Genesis 2-7, and they would say that it would be the spirit who was breathed into Adam's nostrils who would energize the first man created. Uh, for the church, also, Psalm 33.6 confirmed this understanding. It says, quote, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. So you have, quote-unquote, the two arms of God, the word and the breath of Yahweh working in creation. So this led to an understanding found not only in, Again, in Second Simple Literature, uh, but a Christian thought. So, the taxes we have discussed so far, the order, is seen here. The creative work originates in the Father, exercised through the Son, and is completed or energized by the Holy Spirit. So, the work of the Incarnation, just as well, is attributed to the Holy Spirit. Uh, As Jesus is incarnate by the Holy Spirit, we find this picture paralleling with Genesis, the The Holy Spirit is overshadowing Mary, uh, and so this is the Holy Spirit's role in the new creation or recreation, just as he had a role in creation. Additionally, it is the Holy Spirit who brings about the gift of repentance and justification. In the former, we have this conviction brought about through the Holy Spirit, and in the latter, we have the application of Christ's work. He is a seal or guarantee and application of our life united to Christ. Uh, so one of the most important themes of the work of the Holy Spirit was dealing with that union with Christ. We are, we are in union with Christ, and this brought about theosis, or sanctification, um, or uh, deification. If you want to use that term, though, people shy away from that term. Uh, we've talked about that before in earlier episodes, and so I'm not going to rehash that too much, and we're going to discuss it uh, in Season 3 in more detail. But basically, the former being based on 2 Peter one, three, through four, where we're told that we partake in the divine nature. And in Protestant thought, this is usually articulated as union with Christ, wherein we uh, grow in our likeness of God in nature uh, through adoption, being born of God and are sanctified, becoming more holy and more conformed to the image of God. And eventually we are met with glorification and we're changed into an eternal immortal uh, being in life and communion with the divine. Now this is not what is called apotheosis, which was purposely avoided in the early church. uh, And that was this idea that man becomes God by nature. Um, Instead we become like God. We don't become ontologically God. God is the only God who is ontologically God, right? Um, So we become more conformed with the image of God. Uh, There's much to do about this being the image of Christ. And we partake in this reality via the Son, who are we are united to, and receive a sonship or daughtership of our own. So through the Son, we have sonship and daughtership, and thus we get to partake in that divine life. Sanctification is our being made holy, right? Being set apart or unique in accordance with our being united to Christ. And holiness was considered an integral uh, process of being performed to God's image via the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. So... Here you have the same thing in Redemption where the Father sends the Son. The Son is the agent of the Father and the Spirit is completing the work of the Father and Son in sanctification. So you see the same work in an original creation where the Father sends out His Word, the Word creates, and it, the Holy Spirit completes the work of creation. And Then you see this in recreation or restoration whichever word you want to use for that. So here's our applications for this section. As Christians who have been born by the Spirit and have been united to Christ, we are sanctified. That is, we are considered holy. And thus we are to live out that reality as living temples of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.19. And we are to live in the reality that we are new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5.17 and Ephesians 2.10. Sanctification is first and foremost a work of God in our life. Uh, through the work of Christ and the application of that work via the Holy Spirit. While we can also say that sanctification is monergistic in the sense that it's all sourced in God, we also find that we are enabled to will and work out our salvation, which you find in Philippians 2, 12, through 13, and 2 Peter one ten. And we are called throughout the scriptures to battle our flesh, Galatians five seventeen, and walk in accordance with the Spirit to live as a living sacrifice to God in Romans 12, 1-2. So we keep God's imperatives by the work of the Holy Spirit, by communion with God, by uh, being led by his Holy Spirit who is completing the work of the triune God in our lives um, until we are glorified. Um, So we keep God's imperatives and commands because we love Jesus, because of the work done in our lives. So we are told to live a um, simple lifestyle, 1 Timothy two nine, Titus two three, and flee from those desires of the world. We live out of the gratitude um, from God and out of our identities found in Christ and the new life set before us. And you see this in Romans 6 and Colossians 3. We are to supply our faith with the obedience of the faith and discipline ourselves spiritually. And you see this in the great passage of 2 Peter 1, 3-14. But not because it earns us anything, we need to stress that, but out of a... Gratefulness towards God for his redemptive work, and because we have been fundamentally changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, we find that we are children of the Father. And whenever we look more deeply at this, we find that in sanctification, we are working in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, keeping in step with Him, etc. He is with us and convicting us of sin, exposing hidden faults, comforting us, rebuking us in many ways, and illuminating the scriptures, empowering us to overcome temptation, uh, developing in us a willingness and effort to accomplish God's good pleasure. And the Holy Spirit also intercedes for us. He prays for us according to God's will. And you see that in Romans 8, 26 through 27. And he moves within us uh, the realization of our already not yet position in Christ, seated with Christ and are longing to be home with our Father and King. So when we consider all of this, um, there's kind of the discussion about spiritual disciplines, right? And these are not a means to sanctification in themselves. You're not going to read your Bible and become holy just by reading your Bible. But rather, we need to see this as a means to meet with God in fellowship, which leads to sanctification. Now, Second Peter does say that we add to our faith Knowledge and virtue, so you can't separate morality from theology. It's important uh, whenever you're reading the scriptures. If you're if you're not doing so with prayer uh, and communion with God, then then you're missing out on one of the beauties of the Christian life. The Holy Spirit will illuminate the scriptures. Um, he does not interpret the scriptures for you, but he illuminates the scriptures so that you can ascertain an understanding of the text. Because there's a difference between knowing and understanding, and he works to ensure that we can apply that text and see where we need to uh, confess sin and where we need to grow and where we need to be led by his working in our lives. So whenever we partake in prayer, reading and meditation on the scriptures, we are called to pray in the spirit and mortify sin by the spirit. Uh, This is a very active role within the Christian life. And you see this within these original pastoral letters, if you will, of uh, Pastor Paul, Pastor Peter, Pastor John, where there's these imperatives. We are told to do X, Y, and Z, uh, and these are not inapplicable to us. Um, some of their imperatives are cultural, but there are still principles underneath those that we can apply to our own lives, right? And so we uh, read the text, we discern God's will, we pray for illumination, and we walk in obedience uh, via the Spirit. We do stuff by the power of the Holy Spirit, not thinking that we can do it on our own, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are empowered to follow and obey the will of God, produce fruit, kill the sin in our lives, and of course, grow in the faith, hope, and love. Ultimately, we move towards God in submitting to the Spirit and seeking out a heart that is soft and obedient, and you see this in Hebrews 3, 8-15, through 15, and Romans 6-7, and we strive to do the will of God from our heart in Ephesians 6-5. Uh, so this is not out of some misguided compulsion to earn favor with God for salvation. No, that is legalism. We're not legalistic. We're not trying to earn Salvation we're working out the salvation. We already have we're working out the reality of the new life placed in us uh, Through the Holy Spirit rather than grieving the Holy Spirit Which is to either work in the flesh or try to strive to earn favor that's already been given to us or a position That's already been given to us through the work of Christ So by the work of the Holy Spirit, we find that God's grace and regeneration is ultimately where we have been given a new heart in Ezekiel Thirty-six, twenty-six. a uh, we are giving God's commandments on our heart Jeremiah 31 33 and we have become obedient from the heart Romans 6 17 and so we are regenerate we are new we have a new circumcised heart that are having godly desires placed within them and we're told in Colossians 2 12 that in him we were circumcised with the circumcision not performed by human hands your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ uh, and so now We can love the Lord with all of our heart in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, but we don't do so perfectly, right? We have to continuously uh, work in communion with God. And so God is working in our hearts for us to will and work for his own good pleasure. And you see that in Philippians 2, 13. And we are new creatures in Christ, like we were told. We were told to draw near to God with a true heart, uh, with our hearts sprinkled clean in Hebrews 10, 22. And scripture tells us that God desires a heart of integrity, Ephesians 6, 5, purity, Matthew 5, 8, uprightness, Psalm 64, 10, steadfastness, Psalm 57, 7, humility, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 29, gladness, Psalm 19, 8, and more. Uh, this is really in this Hebraic understanding of the heart, which we'll highlight here in a second. But ultimately we find that Luke 18 gives us this picture The good soil, uh, those who hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and they bear fruit with patience. So whenever you read the scriptures and you hear the word and you hold it fast in an honest and good heart, cleaned out, uh, that's when you bear fruit with patience. Uh, So the text here in Luke is the parable of the sowers, which is very important for this discussion. And again, we are not sinless in this life which is why we are told to guard your heart for everything you do flows from it in Proverbs 4.23. And we're told to store up the word in our heart that we may not sin against the Lord, Psalm 119.11. So in the Hebrew understanding of the heart, the heart is not a separate entity for us, but it's us in our entirety. The heart is no longer made of stone, but it can be hardened, but instead it's turned to flesh. The heart is no longer desperately sick, but it's not entirely free from the remnants of sin. The heart is not mere emotions. That's kind of the picture we have of it in our contemporary settings. Nor is the heart the sinful nature. The sinful nature affects the heart instead. So our heart now is not fully mature, and we will continue to grow in our godliness as we conform our hearts to God's desires. And this is only by the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit in our communion with God through his great promises. To read that passage in Peter, he says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, that is through the precious and great promises, you may be able to become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Read the whole passage in second Peter one, three through 11. It's fantastic. So God works in the heart. And we spoke to this before that, Uh, We are working out what God is doing in us. He works in a number of ways, uh, but first and foremost, by setting the heart free. The picture in the Bible is this idea of enlarging the heart, making it wide, and liberating it from the bondage of sin and bringing in instead wisdom, joy, and this inner freedom. And you can see this in Psalm 119, 32 through 45. And God stimulates and strengthens the characters of our new heart through the Holy Spirit And our responsibility is to work out these realities instead of grieving the Holy Spirit by ignoring these realities. So again, we can think about Philippians. uh, We are to work out what he has already done in us. We grow in these things by having them and being active in them. We grow by following Peter's roadmap, if you will. He says, uh, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with loves. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, So we we try to produce fruits, but Peter gives us a a more firm roadmap that will ensure that we are not ineffective or unfruitful in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, In scripture, we are told to incline our heart towards God and his will. Uh, And you see that, of course, in Joshua 24, 23, 1 Samuel 7, 3, we're told to guard our heart and watch our heart that we mentioned earlier. Um, we are told to honor Christ and let the peace of Christ rule in our heart, 1 Peter 3.15 and Colossians 3.15, and pray for change in our hearts uh, and the knowledge of God and be strengthened in our hearts, Ephesians 3.16-19. through 19. So all activities, because of the Hebraic understanding of the heart, ultimately are calls to conform our hearts to the heart of Christ. So whenever we think about how this looks, it all starts with the mind, our thoughts. And so the Bible speaks to the thoughts of, Emotions will, but everything finds its beginning in the mind. So we are called to take every thought captive for the obedience of Christ. Uh, we cannot change our emotions and will by snapping our fingers, but instead, through prayerful uh, reflection and keeping the step with the Holy Spirit, we direct our thoughts towards the things of God rather than dwelling on things of the flesh, right? So Philippians 4 brings this to mind. Consider all of these things. And there's a list of scriptures that we can ponder on daily. Uh, or set your mind on Christ, who is your life in Colossians 3. Renew the mind, Romans 12. We obviously can control our actions, but behavior modification is not heart modification. And heart modification is what matters in the Christian life. Everyone can do the right thing with the wrong heart. Uh, and our goal is to have our hearts conformed to Christ. So we put God's truth into our thoughts, which eventually affects emotions. And this will affect the will. And this is really what comes down to biblical meditation, which is not emptying out the mind, but rather filling the mind with God's word and chewing on um, a doctrine or a characteristic or the work of the gospel until that knowledge becomes a real understanding that clicks in your entire being, a real conviction of the truth. And so, ultimately, uh, we find that this is all a means to fellowship with the Holy Spirit. We we hear the word, we pray, we hold it fast, and we have to be receptive. We have to focus on that conviction that we might need to confess that maintains our fellowship with God. And you see this in First John. Um, but there's also a difference between just hearing, in the sense of having like sound waves bounce off your ear. But instead, we're supposed to be processing, paying attention, seeking to understand. So the first step into conforming our hearts to God's heart is to be receptive of the work of God, who is working to soften our heart, conform our hearts, and ensure that we are growing in conformity to his son, Jesus Christ. So there's this connection to pray and to pray for the receptiveness of the heart, the removal of barriers, to have the eyes and ears open to the truth of God's word while directing our heart towards God. So two spiritual disciplines that we could talk about are the word and prayer. And of course, we are called to die to ourself, meaning that we crucify our flesh, but we also live in the resurrection and the reality of our union with Christ. We are dead to the old self and we put on the new man as we discuss prior in terms of Romans 6. And then we abide with God. We must be real with God. We aren't hiding anything, so we have to be real with God. Uh, we can't hide anything. So you open yourself up and you abide in this life with god and abiding has this idea of frequency it isn't neglect but frequency we abide in god's word we abide in god's love and we make our life a life of prayer and communion with the triangle